0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today, UK author, broadcaster and comedian Sandy Toxvick is here. Sandy's best known in Australia as a host of the BBC series QI. But that's just the merest, teeniest, tiniest portion of a fabulous life she spent in the relentless pursuit of everything that interests her. Sandy's curiosity was stoked from a young age by her dad, whom she loved very much, and who was Denmark's first TV foreign correspondent. And that meant that Sandy grew up all over the world, in Europe, Africa and New York City. Despite being a frequent absentee student, Sandy went to Cambridge. While she was there, she joined Footlights, and then she appeared on the very first night of London's legendary comedy store. Sandy has appeared regularly on shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway? and Have I Got News For You. She's written more than 20 books for adults and for children. And as an 11-year-old, she played a crucial role in NASA's mission control during the Apollo 11 moon landing. After all these years, Sandy talks is at last doing her first live tour of Australia. Hello, Sandy.
0: It's like my life flashed before me there, Richard. I feel there's nothing left to say. Really.
1: I know. Let's wrap it up now, <laughs> shall we? Let's go home, and have a cup of tea or something. <laughs> I mentioned your dad there, who was on the telly as well. Tell me a bit about the kind of man he was and what he meant to you. Uh, well, we
0: just passed the anniversary of his passing, which is, uh, is extraordinary to me because he was such a vibrant guy. The fact that he's not here is hard to believe. He passed away 34 years ago. He was, and not just because he was my dad, the sort of guy that lit up a room. He had a charm about him. He was the sort of man who couldn't go into a bar without buying a round of drinks for everybody. And he taught me to be interested in minutia. He was a brilliant correspondent. And he always said it's the detail that is going to sell the story to the audience. Uh, I'll give you a very quick example. Uh, he was broadcasting to Denmark uh, the marriage of Prince Charles and Princess Diana, and he was trying to find a Danish connection of any kind, and uh, Kiri Tukano was singing, and he discovered that her earrings were made by a Danish jeweller. <laughs> and he went, that's it, there that's it the one. There we go. <laughs> His excitement at that,
1: I've never forgotten. Him. He must have been very well known in Denmark. What did that mean when you went out in public as a family?
0: Well, it gave me a very odd relationship with fame early in my life. I don't remember a time when uh, my family wasn't in the spotlight. My dad was incredibly famous. When Danish television started, my dad was the very first host of the news. And in those days, uh, it's hard to believe now, He, the news would come on. Do you, I don't know how old you are, Richard, but it used to be that if you wanted to watch television at seven, you had to turn on a five two to warm the television up. You know, you had to have a little moment for it to think about going, oh, I get to broadcast now. The lights would come on at the back. Uh, so my dad came on at seven. He read the news from a desk in black and white. There were no uh, insert film footages at all. He had a red telephone on his desk. I don't know why it was red, because it was black and white telly. Uh, And occasionally the Prime Minister would ring and they would do an interview together. And my dad would often smoke his pipe while reading the news. So this is how casual it was. At 8 o'clock, he would finish, and then uh, they would do a half-hour documentary about, I don't know, the Queen's Silver Spoon Collection. Uh, And then the (laughs) service would close down. My father was two-thirds of all available Danish television. He was famous in a way. That's it. We had one channel, and he was an hour over an hour and a half. I don't think you can imagine fame like it. <laughs> You're so, to me
1: that the TV station closed down at, at, at yeah. what, 8.30 or something, didn't it? 8.30, yes, 830. it was an hour and a half. That, that was it. That was, that was thought to be quite enough television for the Danish public, was it, at that point?
0: Darling, there was milking to do in the morning. I'm not going <laughs> to keep you up past half past eight. Ridiculous. Um, so when we went out, uh, if we went into a restaurant, this is how old-fashioned it is. You're talking about uh, the early 1960s. The men in the restaurant who were dining, if my father walked in, would stand up and bow their heads and click their heels until he sat down to eat. It was weird. It was weird. Did all that go to his head a bit, I wonder? No, not in the slightest. So he was so wonderful about it. What he always taught me, and he had no idea what I was planning to do uh, for a living, he said the thing about fame, Sandy, is it doesn't mean anything. It's absolute nonsense unless you use it for good purpose unless you try and make it mean something. So he was passionate about being factually accurate. He would be so horrified by the misinformation around things like, for example, American elections and so on, just to big a subject at random. Mm. And uh, he was passionate that he had to tell the truth and that the audience had to believe him because he said, otherwise, I'm just, uh, what am I? I'm just a mouthpiece. And I remember on holiday, he once grew most exquisite, very neat, what we used to call a naval beard. He thought it was marvellous. He was very pleased with it. And he went on television with his neat navel beard and he got lots of letters saying, what a marvellous beard. And he immediately shaved it off. And I said, why did you do that, Dad? It looked really nice. And he said, because if they're looking at my beard and talking about that, they're not listening to what I'm saying.
1: Oh, so that's, lovely. oh that's lovely. So it was important oh. that
0: he said the truth.
1: And is he still an influence on how you go about your day-to-day life today?
0: Absolutely. I think about him every time I take a seat in a television studio. Of course, I stood behind the cameras for years and watched him working. And I remember him saying to me, he came to visit me in my very first television show that I was doing. And I said at one point, I said, can I get a glass of water? And he took me to one side and he said, darling, you need to learn the name of the person whose job it is to get you the glass of water. Because they're as important a member of the team as you are. So I don't want to ever hear you say again, may I have a glass of water? I want you to hear you say the name of the person and then... Ask them for the glass of water. That's and he a, was right. That's he a famous in
1: Australia right. a bit of advice that was given to a Prime Minister Paul Keating by his mentor who said, watch how people in politics treat service people. Watch how a politician treats a waiter, a taxi driver, a cleaner, a flight attendant. That'll tell you so much about who they are yeah. and their personality. Yeah. This is the same yeah. thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And when my father passed, which was, you know, horrendous uh, time in my life, at his funeral, our local postman and the Prime Minister sat next to each other in the front row of the church. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's that's he got that right.
1: Your mum was British. How did she meet your dad?
0: So um, when Danish uh, radio, uh, as we still call it, we still call Danish television Danish radio, when Danish radio started, uh, so it was their equivalent of the BBC, in order to do the trainings that hadn't happened before, they sent my dad as one of the first trainees uh, to the BBC. And my mum, uh, who doesn't ever get as much credit as... Uh, as my dad, and she should. She was one of the first female studio managers at the BBC. It was unheard of to have a woman in. Imagine a woman putting mm. the news on. Extraordinary idea. Uh, and so she uh, literally met him through the glass. Uh, uh, people who are not familiar with radio studios won't know that the the sort of controls are on the other side of a large piece of glass to the person who's broadcasting. Um, and she put him on air. Uh, so they. I don't know if the glass steamed up. I don't like to think about it too much, Richard. <laughs> it's my parents. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: I was going to ask you if it was love at first sight, but that is it is your mum and dad, <laughs> and are you. Probably well, don't want to yeah, go no. there. No, that's right. I don't. You know,
0: they liked each other. They liked
1: each other. That's marvellous. And here you are in the world, and that's lovely. Oh, I know. <laughs> you mentioned there that the TV had to go off at 30 so people could get up to do the milking. Was, Dan- was Denmark still quite a, a rural, provincial society? Where did you have country, uh, rural family members?
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I had a great aunt who was a- who was a milkmaid all her life, and uh, she was the sweetest person I think I've ever met. And uh, when she got married, she had a, a week's holiday in Copenhagen, and when she got back to the Jutland, the main mainland, the main country area of Denmark, um, nobody wanted to know what Copenhagen was like, everybody wanted to know what it was like to have a week off, it was just, it was, un, was unheard of, and and she told me a story and that has stayed with me all of my life, so uh, they got every other Christmas off, right, the milkmaids, so uh, one year, it was her year to have Christmas off. And a milkmaid came to her and said, could she swap years because there was a boy she really liked and she wanted to uh, go to a dance with him. And my aunt said, no, she wanted to have Christmas off. And she said she regretted it for the whole of her life.
1: Oh, she she remembered that one unkindness, did she? Right?
0: Yeah. So there's an interesting lesson for us all there.
1: I have a very good friend who grew up in Iceland. His early years were in Iceland, and he said as he was growing up, there was a TV ad campaign in Reykjavik that said, Iceland, it's okay to smile, because they wanted to encourage Icelanders to smile for, for visitors, because they said, he said, until then, Icelanders saw smiling as a sign of weakness and laughter as a sign of madness. Was Denmark a fellow Scandi country a bit like that as well, Sandy?
0: Well, no, I mean, I uh, weirdly, I went into comedy because of Denmark. Um, so my dad had... as. Is the way, he had lots of friends in show business. Uh, and he had a friend of his called Dirk Passer, and Dirk Passer was in his time the most famous comic, kind of slash clown, uh, in Denmark. And I remember going to see him at the age of six and watching him just have the audience completely in the palm of his hand, and people were rocking. With laughter, and I sat there and I thought, yeah, that I'd like that. I'd like to do what he's doing. That looks like fun. So, so the Danes have a great sense of humour, but they will also tell you straight out if you say to them what you think of the thing I'm wearing. It doesn't suit you, and they're trying to be kind. They're really, they're trying to be kind. I don't think it's just a Danish thing. I think it's a Scandinavian thing. I was in Norway, and we went to Norway to the Arctic for my uh, for our honeymoon. And uh, we are right up in the north in a place called the Lofoten Islands and I was talking to this guy and I said, how bad does the weather get up here? He said, well, last winter the porch blew off our house. And I said, oh, that's terrible. And he said, no, it was winter. Who needs a porch in the winter? And I thought, wow, yeah, that's such a scandy attitude. OK, we'll worry about that in the spring.
1: <laughs> Norway, the home of disposable porches. <laughs> I
0: know, right? You just imagine some porch flying past somebody. Go, oh, there's Orloff's porch again. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like it as an attitude. I think we all worry too much about stuff.
1: That's right. Let's look at so hung up on our porches. I quite agree. Um, <laughs> you've written about your family's extraordinary story during the Second World War and your father, who was a boy during that time. Tell me how you found out this story and how it unfolded as it was told to you.
0: My dad didn't really talk very much about it. So, Denmark was occupied uh, during the Second World War, uh, Copenhagen in particular. And it used to make my dad very mad that, uh, in in Britain, for example, they used to refer to Denmark. Uh, not everybody; some people referred to Denmark as Hitler's canary, and there was a suggestion that the Danes were colluding with the Germans being there, and it wasn't the case at all. And he eventually, although very slowly, uh, told me the story of what happened. So I come from a long line of theatricals and uh, writers. And my uh, grandmother, my father's mother, was an actress. She was extremely beautiful. And my grandfather was a writer and a painter, a scenic artist. And when Germany occupied Denmark, we didn't have a large Jewish population, perhaps seven or 8,000 people. Uh, it was decided by a number of right-thinking people that what they needed to do was to get the Jewish population out to Sweden. And the story is remarkable. So it was very dangerous. You have to imagine there was the SS troops everywhere, the German troops. My grandfather created and painted a false wall in their apartment in central Copenhagen. So it was it it created a sort of a narrow space, maybe three, four feet deep. but if you looked at it, you uh, put a chaise longe right in front of it almost to draw attention to it. If you looked at it as you walked into the room, you would think that was the end of the room that is how he painted it and then they hid a Jewish family uh, behind this wall, and they they did have a gun, but they hid it in a geranium flower pot, and my father, who was perhaps eleven at the time ran messages for the for the underground and then on one occasion they heard that the SS were going to come and search the apartment so they put the Jewish family behind the wall and my grandmother bear in mind actress she lay on the chaise lounge and before the soldiers arrived she cut her legs all over with a sharp knife and then applied theatrical makeup so she looked like she had terrible sores on her legs and then she covered herself with a shawl and knowing my grandmother probably cashmere uh, and my father, a small boy, stood in front of the geranium pot which had the gun hidden in it on instructions that at the last minute, if there was nothing else to do, he was to reach for the gun. Uh, and the soldiers arrived, and my father said my grandmother gave the finest performance of her life. She threw back the shawl and said, how could you accuse a woman who's this ill of doing anything at all? Look at me, I can't walk. I can, you know.'" He said it was, you know, damo camellia. Uh, <laughs> it was just an amazing performance. Uh, Did and she disgust around.
1: them? Is that that part of the trick as well, disgusting them by her sores?
0: Yes, disgusting them, uh, horrified that you could treat a woman like this, uh, a mixture of trembling lip and outrage, tears, uh, and they never did take the gun out of the geranium pot. The men went away, and that Jewish family was uh, safely taken by small boat uh, across the waters uh, to Sweden. And years and years later, my... Uncle Hans, my my father's brother, was getting married and he went to a tailor to have a suit made. And the man said to him, it's almost making make me cry as I say it to you, and the man said to him, I'm not going to charge you for this suit because I was the small boy who escaped that day from your home.
1: Oh, Sandy, that story so, makes me think and feel so many different things. How does it make you think and feel when you hear that?
0: Well, I, you know, it's a lot to live up to to have a family like that. And I remember saying to my dad, "Why did you do it? You, you didn't. You weren't Jewish. You didn't even have any Jewish friends." And he just shrugged and said, "It was the right thing to do." Mm. And that is like if I had a motto in my life, it's that: do try and do the right thing. Uh, so I have a lot to. You know, he was a great guy. uh, You know, maybe it would have been nice to have had a bricklayer dad. My English grandfather was a bricklayer, so I don't know why I picked that.
1: So when you were seven or so, the family moved to the United States. What brought you there?
0: Uh, So Denmark decided that it was time we had a foreign correspondent. It was a new idea. Uh, And so in order to have one, because that's all they could afford, they sent my dad to New York because the United Nations was there. There was a theory, which I like, that you could cover the whole world from the United Nations because it'd be somebody from that country that you could talk to. And uh, so we moved there. People don't know how the information dissemination has changed. My dad used to go out with a film crew and he would shoot a story uh, about whatever it was. And then quite often late at night, my dad and I would drive out to Kennedy Airport, the main airport in New York, with a large roll of film in a silver canister. And we would go up to people flying to Copenhagen and ask them if they'd take the news home. And it's, what really? It, it seems yeah yeah yeah. And then you'd meet some nice person, and my dad would probably know somebody who was at school with or something. Denmark's quite a small country, and uh, they would take the film home. So a story would take maybe three days from shooting to to appearing on the television, and nobody was in a great hurry. Nobody was racing to get the news. It wasn't like last minute. Oh, this has happened and that's happened. And my dad always referred to it as edited reality, that he wanted in his, whatever the broadcast was going to be, three minutes or whatever, to make sure that it was the truth about what he had done. It just took a bit longer. It was a little bit more thoughtful. And I think that's probably not a bad thing.
1: Do you remember how you responded to moving from Copenhagen, which is beautiful and very human in scale, to the great roaring enormity of Manhattan? I loved
0: it. I'm still excited when I arrive anywhere. I have a... A real sense of the potential of Anywhere New. And what I learned from my dad is that everywhere in the world has something to commend it. You just need to go and find it. So all I see is possibility when I go anywhere. And I think I felt that when we arrived in New York. Just the smell of it and the steam rising up from the subway in the street. And there's something magical. Uh, Still, I feel that. I feel very at home in New York. But it has left me with a, a great love of arriving anywhere new.
1: How did your father encourage you to become interested, you and your brother, to become interested in current affairs, worldliness, the the world at large?
0: Well, I don't think we had any choice, Richard. Really? Again, I I must sound like uh, some terrible dinosaur. So in our house, we had a a Reuters ticker tape machine. Reuters is uh, still uh, one of the great news services. Uh, and a ticker tape machine was a machine that, that sort of fed the news out, and it didn't stop; it just kept sort of coming. So you had um, this chattering
1: machine in the apartment. This all chattering the chattering machine mm. was
0: in my dad's in my dad's study, uh, and it would ping. It would ping one for eh, quite interesting, two for, mm, and three for invasion. Pretty much, that was kind of you know <laughs> was kind of... So I have never forgotten the night when Russia invaded Czechoslovakia because it just kept pinging threes all the time. So there was a sense of the news being a backdrop. To our lives. There was a sense of the the soundtrack of a ticker tape machine constantly telling us that something was happening. Plus, Dad Dad never treated us like children. He just thought we were sort of slightly smaller adults. I don't ever remember him talking to us as a child. From about the age of eight, I read the first, me and my brother read the first three pages of the New York Times before supper, so that we had something interesting to talk about because dear God, he didn't want to hear about school. Um <laughs> so so uh, I guess we were expected to be up to speed and we attended lots of events. I went to both the Republican and the Democrat national conventions. We attended all kinds of things. We were endlessly on the road, but we were aware of what was happening. One of the most distressing moments of my life, uh, my father ringing in tears because he had been there when Robert Kennedy was shot and him ringing saying, this is, this is so horrific for America. And this is a you know, not wearing his his uh, impartial journalist hat, but he he had personally liked Robert Kennedy and spent time with him. So there were things that really stay with me, that uh, my father's reaction to it and the importance on the world stage of it absolutely was, was brought home to me. And my, my brother is now an absolutely brilliant foreign journalist. He was, he's on the editorial side, but... Is an extraordinary journalist. Uh, so it stayed with us. It, I don't think it has uh, ever left either of us.
1: So that was 68, and 69 was the year of the Apollo moon landing. Tell mm. me about the day your dad. Took you to Cape Kennedy for the launch of the Apollo Moon mission in '69. How close did you get to the rocket, Sandy?
0: Well, incredibly close. So again, you know, I'm 11 years old and I'm thinking, "Oh, Florida, fun!" Because in those days, you could get a baby alligator for hardly any money <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> at the roadside, and they were like ten dollars or something. I thought, wow, let's get a baby alligator." And uh, we drove down. Uh, there's a place called. There's a, there's a road called the Beeline Highway, and it was just exciting. I thought, "Oh, going to Florida, how marvelous!" Uh, and then there was less. Anxiety about childcare, can I just say, in those days, I think there was a lot less anxiety. Uh, So my mum went off to help dad because there were these huge booths set up for all the foreign journalists. So Apollo 11, of course, anybody who doesn't recall the very first manned mission to the moon. So my brother and I were sort of abandoned um, at a a beach, which was all the families of the correspondents. And we were as close as you were allowed to be to the rocket, which is a mile and a half. But you could see it really clearly uh, across the sort of flat waters. And and when it and there was the countdown. They had a big tannoy system set up, so you heard the countdown: T minus ten. Um, and there was all the stuff going on, and people were very excited. And when it took off, the the ground shook. It I have such a strong recollection of it. And then we transferred. So that was Cape Kennedy, as was in in Florida. And then we uh, flew to Houston in Texas, which is where Mission Control was. And again, Dad was very busy and people didn't have the security they have now. I just say ABC, very hard to get into. In those days, Mission Control, Houston. (laughs) I had some trouble getting to meet you, Richard. It was tricky uh we arrived there and uh, and we just my brother and i just wandered around and uh, my dad i think i'd persuaded him had bought me a huge texas cowboy hat massive 10 gallon hat I was a tiny little thing so i'm walking around with this big hat on and then there's the moment uh, neil armstrong's about to step out onto the moon and slightly flub his lines and i'm standing there there's a woman standing next to me and i must have looked very curious this massive hat on uh, i said to her are you all right she said i'm a little nervous I said, oh, why? She said, my boss is about to step out onto the moon. And it was Neil Armstrong's secretary. So I said, as you would as an 11-year-old, I said, oh, don't worry, I'll hold your hand. So when he stepped out onto the moon, I was holding Neil Armstrong's secretary's hand. I don't know whether she remembered it as well as I did, but it was an extraordinary thing.
1: I'm sure so I told my dad remembers.
0: afterwards and he went, oh, I can't believe I didn't have a camera on that. <laughs>
1: I'm I'm sure she remembers the girl in the 10-gallon hat, the little girl holding her hand. So what were you like as a school kid once you were at school going back and forth, Sandy?
0: Oh, I don't know. Uh, Mouthy, I think, probably. Mouthy. Um, I I liked facts, to be correct. I remember I had a teacher in the fifth grade in the United States. She was from Arkansas, and she was called Miss Strange. It's a great name, isn't it? Miss Strange. (laughs) And she said, the thing about Africa, children, very hot, hot all the time. And I said, excuse me, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro's got snow on it. You're a liar, Sadie, you're just a liar. There is no snow in Africa. And I just thought, oh, my God. Uh, so, <laughs> so I think I must be very annoying. I must, I'm sure Miss Strange went home and thought I was a nightmare. I'm, yeah.
1: I'm thinking, I've got the mental picture in my head now, the famous picture of Mount Kilimanjaro, and it's always snow-capped. Thank, Thank you. you. I rest my case.
0: Thank you very much.
1: So this is why you uh, were absentee so often?
0: I I found school a bit boring. Uh, we were given Catcher in the Rye to read, which is a slim book, frankly, by J.D. Salinger. Uh, so I went home and I read it, <laughs> fully prepared to discuss it the next day. Had a discussion with my dad about it in the morning. I went in and realised they were going to read it one word at a time all year. So I thought, you know, I'll come back when they finished. I'll just... <laughs> I'll... I'll I'll go find something else to do. And what was that? It makes me sound like a smart-ass. It makes me sound like a smart-ass, which is not nice. I should have just sat there and done what they said, Mm. but I've always been impatient. I was impatient with the rest of them to read the book.
1: So where did you go if you weren't at school while they were plodding through Catcher in the Rye, page by page?
0: So I used to hang out at the local theatre. I used to hang out backstage. Uh, Sometimes I, ashamed to say, I took the train uh, up to the city. We were in a suburb called Mamaroneck, which is a suburb of New York City. And I would take the train up and sneak into a matinee. That's terrible. It's terrible. If my children did this, I'd be very, I'd have to sit them down and say, well, I'm very disappointed, which is my go to word with my children. (laughs) So I'm not proud of it, Richard. I'm not proud. It's not good.
1: So, what happened when your parents went to one of those parent teacher nights at one of these schools you were supposed to be attending?
0: Well, fortunately, my parents had a very lackadaisical, mildly indolent attitude to parenting. So mostly they didn't go or ask me what I'd been up to. On one occasion, for reasons I can't recall, maybe there were free drinks, I don't know what happened, they went to a parent-teacher association meeting, couldn't find a teacher who knew me. <laughs> so... The... <laughs> The game was up. <laughs> Apparently it was not enough to just turn up every day and hang out at the local theatre. And so mm. slightly despairing, because I was 14 by then, they sent me inexplicably to boarding school in England. Uh, my uh, mother's from England. Uh, my grandparents were still alive then, living in England. And I think my English grandmother had a had a say in this because I went to the school that her her best friend's kids had gone to. I say school, I'm going to say slash jail. Hmm. Um, I was going to say,
1: for someone who's been a pretty free-range kid, I just felt my heart sinking then when you told me you were sent to a boarding school in the UK, Sandy. It was hideous.
0: I have a theory about British boarding schools. I don't know if it's the same in Australia. I think they are funded by therapists to breed new clients. <laughs> I think that's the main purpose uh, of boarding school. It's a patient factory for therapists. <laughs> I say this, I'm married to a therapist, so I have some understanding of how important this is. So, uh, so I'm grateful. I'm grateful. <laughs> uh,
1: so... so who was there to greet you on your first day at boarding school in England?
0: So Matron. Uh, matron was a large woman. She wobbled. She, she didn't really walk. She wobbled. And uh, she opened the door... <laughs> I was very friendly. I had a big New York accent. I've been living in New York for years and years. I said, hi, I'm Sandy. And she said, I'm Matron. I said, oh, what is that? Like your first name, your last name? How's that work there? Uh, Anyway, she hated me on sight. So that was good. Uh, She made the next four years of my life help. And because I had a thick New York accent, this is my sub story, Richard. Are you ready? Mm, I'm I'm ready. I'm bracing myself. I'm totally over it. Little violin, if you wouldn't mind. For the first six weeks living in the UK, bear in mind I'd never lived in the UK. Nobody spoke to me. So the whole school sent me to Coventry. For
1: how long did you say, six weeks? It
0: was the first six weeks of living there.
1: And was that your accent? Yeah. And how did you change your accent? Because you're not using a New York accent anymore. I know.
0: As I speak, like I'm trapped in a black and white film. And that is because I am trapped in a black and white film. I Very occasionally, we weren't allowed to watch television because it was too exciting for the girls. Occasionally we were shown a film and we were one night shown Brief Encounter. I don't know why. It's quite a sexually charged film. Yeah. Uh, Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard and I watched the film and I thought, oh, well, whatever, I'll speak like that. So so I speak like Celia Johnson in in Brief Encounter. However, if and when, Richard, you and I enjoy a small schooner of beer, I will revert to my <laughs> real accent, which is somewhere, I think,
1: between the Norwegian porch guy and American. <laughs> Do you need to have a drink for that to come out? I,
0: well, I think it's probably best. <laughs> best to keep it quiet. <laughs>
1: podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Once the dreadful business of school was over for you, at boarding school, you went to Cambridge to study law and archaeology and anthropology. Good God. Did university suit you much better than school? I'm assuming it did, Sandy.
0: Initially, I found it hugely exciting um, because the, the presence of, of clever people is always energising, I think. It was, again, it's hard to imagine, but it was the late 70s. It was still a huge imbalance in terms of uh, gender. so. There were 10 boys for every girl on my course, and if you wanted to get heard, you really needed to make yourself unpopular, I think, because it was hard for, for women uh, to get in. I loved the study of law. I really enjoyed it. I had My dream then was to become a human rights lawyer, and gradually, through my training, I began to realise more and more that the legal, legal system – maybe it's not true in Australia, but certainly it's true in Britain – uh, was more and more about money and less and less about justice. And that's not true for everybody, but it was certainly true for the kind of course that I was on. So I started taking random courses that nobody else was interested in. I took—I um, was one of only three people, all women, who took the very first course taught on Muslim law in the United Kingdom. And I found that fascinating because I love knowledge just for its own sake. So I'm possibly a rare atheist who's read the whole of the Quran and mm. found it interesting. Uh, and I loved all of that uh, side of it. And then, very sadly, between my second and my third year, I became extremely ill and uh, had to have a life-saving operation.
1: How, how did you notice something was wrong? When did, what, were the, what were the signs that something had gone badly wrong?
0: Well, I didn't. I, I have a terrible disconnect, I think, between my, my brain and my body. I, I, I sort of pay very little, scant attention Scant attention. Scant to attention body. to your body. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I had lost an enormous amount of weight. And had gone down to five and a half stone. I don't know what that is in, in oh, real dear. money. Oh dear! Oh uh, dear! That's 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 not good. It's five times 14, 50, 76 pounds. Is that is not very not a lot? I, I a don't.
1: Lot I, I only know what it is in the old money too. So that's that's okay. that's fine. Plus thin, yes, as real thin, Merit too thin.
0: Let's go with real thin, mm. um, cartoon-like thin, but with quite a large belly. And my English grandmother, who was mostly not a terribly nice person, said to me, are you pregnant? And I said, no, Granny, then I think you're ill. And I went to the doctors, and indeed I was extremely unwell and had an operation. And so I was advised not to go back for my third year, but...
1: um, I have to ask, what was wrong? What, What did they find?
0: Oh, darling, it's, uh, I, I was written up in The Lancet, which is a medical magazine. I had the largest ovarian cyst ever seen. And the real <sighs> issue was not uh, the cyst itself, but uh, the fact that it was crushing all my organs. They had never seen something like it. In order to, to I think they had to wear Wellingtons during the uh, operation. I think there was an awful lot of liquid. Um, but I have a scar about 10, uh, 11 inches across my whole system uh, because they couldn't get to it. Oh, my God, so Sandy, was, so that's extraordinary. I, it's weird, right? Why not have, Why have something dull? Why not have something interesting? Typical attention interesting.
1: seeker you are appearing know, in The Lancet too. I it's know. like, look at me, look at me all the time, isn't it? Yeah. Look at that.
0: Look at this thing. <laughs> look at this thing.
1: Um, uh, seriously, <laughs> though, I suppose you don't know how bad you feel until you have your giant ovarian cyst cut out of you. What was it like to then recover? Did it take forever to recover or did you recover quite quickly?
0: No, it took a very long time. and The scar was very large. I had uh, lost a ridiculous amount of weight. I was very poorly, uh, very uh, weak. Did you uh, think you were going they, to die? I did because they didn't know what it was. I had one of the world's first ultrasounds and they thought it was a tumour. So there were... It was not a it was not a happy time.
1: But he, my dad, bless
0: his heart, he used to come... He was very excited. I remember that he had just found... Do you remember a portable radios? He had just found the world's first portable tiny television, black and white television. And he used to come... And watch the cricket on a screen that was about two inches square. I don't think he could see the ball, um, <laughs> but I remember him sitting by my hospital bed, just holding my hand. And uh, we didn't really chat, so I was too weak. But it was nice that he was t- sat there. With. He was very excited by this new piece of technology. Does I often v- think how excited he'd be by all the stuff now. It'd be so amazing. Um, does
1: the wind still trouble you? Does that? Have, does that? Does that hideous experience still cause you physical? pain? Or... Uh,
0: well, the this, this scar is very helpful. It tells me when the weather's going to change. So I get a twinge. Are you serious? <laughs> I do get a twinge in my scar. I
1: never know what to make when people <laughs> tell me this. I had a brother-in-law who said, oh, I could absolutely tell when it was going to rain, but he said, I've, I've been yeah. sniffing up the chimney. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And, and yeah. he said, and, and he, was, he was right. And, and yeah. are you serious? You can tell when the weather's going to change?
0: I can, and I, as I get older, I had my first tattoo at 60, and I'm 64 now. I was thinking, because it's a straight line across my stomach, I was thinking of having it a small zip tattooed on one end of it
1: just like just like hey help yourself open up i think you could <laughs> do a really interesting sort of like bizarre meteorology section at the end of the news and i think you'd be following in your dad's footsteps and i think it'd be a marvelous thing all around <laughs> yes. and Can we go over to sandy's scarf. What's right. it's gonna rain everybody and you could say yeah don't listen to what that fool just told you i'm telling you it's going to rain <laughs> yes that'd be marvelous <laughs> tremendous oh, my god anyway it was this the same year you fell in love for the first time
0: uh, yes, uh, no, so I was already, I fell in love in my first year at university with a, a third year, which is, you know, shocking, <laughs> it's only two years apart, but when you're a first year, you just think, oh, third year, so amazing. Uh, and how did you fall and, in love? Uh, well, she lived in the room above mine in our halls, and she came down to complain about the noise I was making. Uh, <laughs> and she never quite I was, left? <laughs> I was laughing, I was laughing and laughing. Uh, and she came down and stayed.
1: <laughs> oh, how nice. Was What was that like to have all that sort of revealed to you all the time? You know, first of all, love and your sexuality and all those sorts of things sort of hitting you in that flood tide of youth and being at Cambridge and all of that, Sandy.
0: Well, it should have been wonderful and it should have been amazing. But again, we're talking about the late 70s. We didn't know anybody else. We didn't know. Uh, there was no... I don't know what you call it here, a gay society, gay sock, we used to say. There's no such thing. Well, there was maybe, but we didn't know about it. We didn't know anybody else. It was a secret. We couldn't tell our friends. We couldn't tell the family. So that moment when you fall in love, which should be so thrilling and exciting, you know, I was 19, was marred by the secrecy. I'm so proud of young people now being who they want to be. I'm so proud of the new language. I'm so proud of what they're all doing. Uh, because to go back to those horrible, dark, shadowed days would be horrific and is is, is positively dangerous for people's mental health.
1: It was all terribly cruel. How, How did the college react when they discovered that you were sharing a bed with another lady person?
0: Well, it's so ridiculous because the college I was at, Girton College, was founded as far as I can work out by a lesbian couple, but everybody <laughs> seemed to have forgotten that. But anyway, so uh, she came up to see me. Uh, she had graduated, but when I was very ill, she came up one weekend to look after me. I was really still very weak and very unwell. And she came up to look after me and they found out and uh, decided that they would discuss at board level whether I should be, what, the, what Cambridge School be sent down, be thrown out. Even though there were girls up and down the corridor who had boys living full time, but that was fine. That was we, we were fine with that. And she'd only come up for the weekend to check on me. Anyway, after three weeks' discussion, I don't know, I can't imagine what the discussion was like. They decided I could stay because of my excellent academic record. So, lesson to you all, people be gay, but be clever about it. So, and it was then, the old
1: don't frighten the horses thing. Was that, was that the honestly, idea? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. And then, again, for the second time in my life, people didn't speak to me. Uh, I was sent to Coventry by the the people at the college and I think there's something in me that just I think they wanted me to leave because it was so uncomfortable I think what they were trying to do was to get me to go because it was so awful and that's don't do that to me because that will just make me stay but my best friend at the time at the university still my friend uh Helen Gavin amazing amazing woman Helen is a very passionate Catholic goes to mass I think every day but I mean a lot You're like a lot. It takes up a lot of time, and I she just carried on the same. She's carried on speaking to me. She's just carried on being my friend. Carried on having coffee with me. She was the only person who would eat lunch with me. She just sat with me the whole time, and I said, "Why are you doing this? Surely the the Pope would think that I'm a very bad person." And all she ever said about it was, "I think the Pope may have got this one wrong." And I love her to this day. She's a passionate, loyal human being fabulous 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 person and years later she brokered a deal she spoke to the college and said what happened to sandy is a disgrace and it has stayed with me and uh maybe three four years ago we went up to the college they made me a fellow they apologized publicly and we had the college's first ever lgbtq plus dinner in the hall with 450 students who identified as as queer and rainbow flags flying and it was it was great it was great. And she did that. She made that happen.
1: But at the time, experiencing all that awful disdain and the alienation that must come with that, this is around the same time you're doing footlights, doing improv, yes, and then doing hilarious. comedy for the first time. I just wonder <laughs> about your irreducible. Is there some kind of invincible core about you that knows that you can win people over or something? Is that, is that what it is, Sandy?
0: Well, of course, I don't know a single comedian that doesn't sit crying in the dressing room. (laughs) I'm trying to make the world a better place. My (laughs) life's terrible. Uh, Most comedians have a fairly dark streak in them. But, of course, comedy's a great way to to try and... uh, and see the world in a slightly better light.
1: I guess. mean you though, I mean there must I mean to take that step out of the alienation and onto the stage where you make people laugh. I'm current just Miriam Margulies did the same thing in generation before you yeah. as well. Yeah. That's there's yeah. some there speaks of some something unconquerable there, I think. What do you think?
0: I don't know. I mean I think it's sometimes it's so painful that you just literally feel like you can't bear it. and so the only thing to do is to try and turn a spotlight on it and make it funny. I think it's so painful that you can succumb, which very sadly some people do, and they never fully recover. Their mental health doesn't recover. Uh, too many LGBTQ plus people have been lost to suicide. It's a very high percentage uh, because of the way in which they've been treated. And I, I hope if just one person looks at me and goes, okay, let's, let's keep going, then, then, uh, then I feel like I didn't become a human rights lawyer, but I did something.
1: I read that you performed on the very first night of the Comedy Store. Was that before it went to Leicester Square when it was still in Soho? Back in those days, Alexi Sale was hosting and all that. Was that that night?
0: Yes. (laughs) It seems extraordinary. They came up to Cambridge to look for people. And I was at the time doing a very strange double act with a guy called Simon McBurney. And Simon has gone on to run the most astonishing theatre company called Theatre de Complicité. And Simon was, at the time, going out with the girl called Emma Thompson. I don't know what happened to her. And uh, <laughs> so they asked me and Simon to come down to the comedy store. And uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a real comedy club. Nobody, there'd been no, there were no stand-up comedy clubs. It was uh, absolutely unheard of. So what they'd done is they'd taken a Sunday night at a, a strip joint and I remember it was going into the bar area and it was called the Doubles Bar. And the woman behind the bar was very cross because she'd been made to wear a top for the evening, <laughs> uh, which she didn't normally. And I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. I was, what? I did not know what was happening. Uh and uh I think Alexi was hosting that night, and Simon and I went on and did the thing. Anyway, they have a list in the in the in the current incarnation of the comedy, so they have a the playlist from that night of all the people who performed. And For for me, it just says Simon McBurney and Sandy with a Y, which is not how I spell my name, and no surname. It looks like he came on with his dog. It's like the most... I just think, wow, that's that's how I'm going to be remembered. Simon McBurney's dog. Uh, And Emma Thompson did sound effects for us. I think it was her <laughs> finest moment in show business.
1: <laughs> when you say sound effects, do you mean like with with like a cowbell or was she making vocal sound effects?
0: We had one of those football rattles for reasons I can't recall. <laughs> it for, used for comedic effect.
1: <laughs> so then you get, you're on television all the time. You're doing Have I Got News For You? And, um, and uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? And you're quite a well-known figure. In 1994, you and your partner at the time had a young family. And then you heard the Daily Mail was going to have a crack at you. How did you find out yeah. about that?
0: I don't know if you know the Daily Mail here. But oh,
1: yeah. Yes.
0: Don't. I'm just going to say don't. I, I, By then I had three small children and I just decided to out myself rather than let the Daily Mail do it. And we went and did an interview with the Sunday Times. And as far as I am aware, there was no other out woman in entertainment 1994. I mean, you mentioned Miriam Ugly's Miriam didn't come out till many years later.
1: So you spoiled it. You spoiled the Daily Mail's headline. I spoiled
0: their story. I spoiled their story.
1: So so it was mainly, it was you then. That was it. You were the only out gay woman in in public life in the UK at that time. Yeah,
0: and then we, immediately the death threats start, you know. It's sad, isn't it? They all come from evangelical Christians, I'm afraid, without exception. Uh, they were going to kill me on God's behalf because apparently God's incredibly busy and didn't have time to do it himself. Uh, so we had to take the children to hiding. Um, we had to have police protection. Uh uh, and at the same time, it looked as though my career was going to collapse, which I was fine, actually, to be honest, I was fine with, because much better to have your children grow up proud of who they are um, than to have any kind of career in show business. It, it really wasn't a, it wasn't a battle for me. Uh, it, it, you know, it sounds like I was brave and, thought, yeah, they'd give up my career, but actually it was no choice for me. My children have always come first.
1: How do they remember well. that now, now that they'd grown up, that incident and that time? They tell you yeah, that? they're
0: so wonderful. They've grown up and they're so proud. And uh, I remember my when my oldest daughter went to university and she got flu, and uh, both me and her other mum raced up to look after her. And uh, uh, we were in her rooms, and one of us was pumping up her pillows, and one of us was making soup. And one of her friends walked in and went, "Oh my God, two mums, not fair!" <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you get double mummied, double mummied if you're with us.
1: You you mentioned a career, a career. um, Have you ever seen yourself as having a career? Because I noticed, like, I mean, I I feel I could just be just as well likely be talking to you as someone who's just emerged out of some pit in Jordan, having pulled out some ancient urn from Asia Minor or something or (laughs) something like that. Had you pursued archaeology, it seems like you're a a serial enthusiast for the things that you love and, and, and are interesting to you. Was that right, Sandy?
0: I think the world is fascinating, Richard. I never cease to be amazed. Uh, I, I There's literally something every single day that I'm fascinated by. Uh, I'm always learning. I'm always going, oh, look at that, look at that. We've just arrived in Melbourne. I've never been here before. And I'm like a child in the taxi. Going, what's that? And what's that over there? And I love it. I, I, I'm as happy in a new city sitting in a cafe just watching the world go by, talking to anybody who will talk to me. I don't understand getting bored, really, other than... Reading Catcher in the Rye one word at a time. Um, I I I think there's there's so much out there that I don't know. The older I get and the more time I spend on shows like QI, which are, you know, ostensibly all about knowledge, the more I realise how little I actually know. And that's a wonderful position to be in because it, it makes you hungry to try and learn the next thing. Uh, so at the moment I'm uh, reading endlessly about trees and about woodland it's become a new passion of mine I'm going to learn to do metal detecting there's just a million things that I want to do so again if my career stops tomorrow um, if my career stops tomorrow I'm fine with that because I'll just go off and do something else
1: Has that been a shield against depression?
0: Sure of course I'm not uh, immune you know nobody is nobody's immune to um, when the world treats you badly you feel horrible and to have to stand up uh, constantly and say well I'm I'm still going to be me guys you can't you know nothing must irritate the daily mail more than the fact that I'm still working <laughs> still laughing <laughs> uh still having a go at them um must be very annoying uh so of course uh, you have moments when uh, you you have your dark days and that's what you, that's what you have your family for and uh and your dog you have your dog to sit with what like i mean is can you mill. use
1: can you use your curiosity to, to shrug it off uh
0: to shrug it off no mm. it sits with you it's with you. Of course it does. It is like a scar. It's like another scar in you. But what I think now of all the things I've been through, i like to think it's made me a nicer person. I'd like to think I have more empathy, that I'm a kinder person, that I understand a bit more about difference and what that feels like, um, which, you know, I might not have done had I not been through the things I've been through.
1: So so take the scars, but, but, but use them for a the good purpose. I love you as a host of QI. I think you're wonderful in that role. Thank you. I really do. And you look very, very comfortable in that role. Um, You're sort of both ringmaster and provocateur. I like how you do both those things. You sort of keep the show on the road and sort of keep it moving along. But then you also kind of give it a bit of a whack around the head every once in a while. You (laughs) seem to know exactly what the the right moment to do that in, Sandy.
0: Well, you say I sit it uncomfortably, so here's the joke of it. Uh, So uh, the first, because I took over from Stephen Fry, who's absurdly tall and I'm absurdly small uh, and for the first two years they wouldn't give me my own chair so I sat in Stephen's chair for two years with my legs dangling and in the end I said to them guys I'm not doing it again unless I can get my own chair this is, this is, this is it's enough now with Stephen's chair let's please could I have so now I have my own chair uh, and it's adjustable and I spend time racing around uh, out of camera shot on my chair it's got wheels and it makes me very happy It's ridiculous. My sign of success is that I've got my own chair.
1: (laughs) What a pleasure it's been speaking with you, Sandy. I've so enjoyed this conversation with you and thank you so much. Pleasure. Sandy Toxvig is at last doing her first live tour of Australia. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like
0: stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking
1: off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because she could never promise that to any
0: child. But I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped.
1: Like stripped. I wanted to be Metaphorically, the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were going to oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there.
0: Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. Promise me.